Hi, this is April Mazza. And this is Christy Showman Fair. And this podcast is Overdue. Where friends and colleagues, librarians, librarians, and each episode we talk about books we're reading, things we're loving, and library advice we're giving. Hi, Christy. Hi, Long April. time no see. Uh, right, right. <laughs> I saw you yesterday. Yeah, yesterday was a special day, and this is a special episode because it's it was a, the Boston Book Fest. It's a very special episode. Capital V. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's right. Capital V. Although there will be no moral no. life lessons. No. Um, <laughs> Just do people remember that from the 80s when your favorite TV show? Yeah, I was trying to explain it to my 13 year old, and they're like, "What? What do you mean by that?" And I'm like, "Never mind, it's fine." Yeah, (laughs) maybe now, maybe nowadays, every episode is a very special episode. Um, But yeah, ours is just special because we did go on an outing. Um, We went to the Boston Book Festival, and for both of us, is our first time. So exciting. Yeah, exciting, but also I think But hilarious. also, like, yes, right, right, yeah. Uh, librarians living in the Boston area, never been to the Boston Yeah, Festival. never been. And and it, I did look it up. It started in 2009, so, Well, that you know. explains it. I had a I mean, we have, <laughs> but we've oh. had a good, you know, 12, 13 year, uh, although the last couple of years it's been virtual, but still, uh, I was a little, not embarrassed, but like, a little bit like how how have I never been? But for both of us, it also coincided with our an annual conference, and we were always pretty busy with that. Yeah. So, that and I have tough. to say, I did attend. Um, they for a short period of time they had a children's version in June ah, called yeah. Hubbub. I did go to that with my kids, and that was a lot of fun. I don't know how many years it happened, um, but it was very similar to the way um, Boston Book Festival was set up yesterday, you know, on Copley Square, which for those of you not in the Boston area is this big kind of um, square in the middle of the city that's across the street from the Boston Public Library and next to a very famous church. And so they set up um, tents with publishers and food. And so all of that was very similar in feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would say too, that there was a lot of stuff for kids yeah. at this book fest, which is really neat. I think if you have kids in the area, it would be something you'd want to do. Um, and yeah, so I did that. I thought I'd set the scene a little for people who have never been, and especially people who don't live in this area. And as Christy mentioned, there's this sort of like a street fair area with booths. Uh, the people in the booths are like literary organizations and um, other nonprofits that are sort of related or similar, very like community and cultural arts type um, organizations. There was also a a booth for WBUR, which is our local public radio station. But I loved this and I have a picture to share, but it was um, a booth called On the Spot Poetry and they were giving away free poems and the line was so long. I looked up and I was like, what's this crazy line for? And then I saw the sign that said free poems. It just made me really happy. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. And like we mentioned the stuff for kids, there was like a tent with books and like a little place to sit and read if you wanted to do that. Berkeley School of Music, which is in Boston, had a stage with live music, which I listened to when I had my little afternoon snack. Uh, I think you mentioned that too, Christy. There were like food trucks and vendors, you know, so you can get your $8 lemonade. I never found the donuts though. Oh, there were donuts? Yes. I ran into an old coworker. No, she, not she's old. A former coworker. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fabulous to see her. Uh, shout out to Lisa if you're listening. Um, and she had a donut. And I asked her where she got it. 
and I never found it. Oh, bummer. I hate that stuff. <laughs> and then, of course, there's like a bazillion author talks. I think there were like 200 there's authors so many. this year. Yeah, so many. And unfortunately, so many like coincide at the same time. So you have to be kind of choosy. And the categories were fiction, nonfiction, poetry, kids, YA, and comics. There were also story times with some like amazing authors. And there were workshops. There were also literary walking tours, which I would have liked to have done, but I didn't have time. Um, there was a scavenger hunt and it's all free. It's kind of amazing. It's a really big deal. Fantastic. And the the number of, of people who are involved in, in organizing and running it too, like um, most of them or all, maybe all of them are volunteers. Um, so I ran into a couple people I knew there that way too, um, who were volunteering as event producer. So they were taking authors to and from the hospitality suite to the events. Because there was a lot of, it, I mean, it spanned a lot of places. Right. And looking at that, it's like one, two, three, four, there are like six different buildings in the area and multiple rooms in many of the buildings. And so there was a lot of moving parts. Yeah. And definitely kudos to all the planners and volunteers because anyone I asked a question of, and they did have these, they had these great, we were calling them red shirts, but they had red <laughs> they t-shirts. Had shirts that were yeah. red. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they had red t-shirts that said, ask me and the, the theme of Boston Book Fest is red. It's all like red and white everywhere. And everyone I asked a question of, and usually it was a wayfinding question, um, they knew the answer. They were helpful. And that's a lot. Like I was thinking like, oh, if I volunteered, would I remember the directions to all these different places? I'm not so sure. And they just had a lot because there were tables set up places with people. Like we went uh, to a session that was in a church on Newberry Street and we walked up to the door and there was a person standing at the door. They were like, this is the door to the bathroom. You actually need to go around the corner and go to this other so like they just thought of everything yeah and we should note that we only saw each other for a little bit of time um we kind of yeah we went to different sessions yeah we went to different sessions we were on different tracks and I had to leave earlier than you so and we haven't talked yet so this is exciting do you want to start off with talking about uh, one of the sessions you went to sure yeah so I drove in with Laura who is one of our supporters hello Laura and um, she's a, a librarian and we always talk YA books. And so I didn't do any planning going into this. I let Laura pick where we were going and what we were doing because I just didn't have the energy to like think about it the, the week beforehand. Well, and you trust her. I do. I totally trust her. Yeah. And so the first session we went to um, is the one that I thought was was absolutely fantastic. And I took tons of notes. I'm going to come back to that one. I just want to mention that another one I went to was Love and Destruction, which was about queer r- breakups in fiction. And uh, it was like really interesting um, the way like it all played out and being like this giant group therapy session. Um, and then I also <laughs> went to um, the YA keynote speaker, which was Melinda Lowe. Yay. Yes. Who we've discussed before. Um, she's just fantastic. Always funny, insightful. I tried to get a get recordings of her speaking, but we were in a church and the the acoustics were not good for recording. So unfortunately, you'll just have to take my word for it that she was fantastic and I can listen to her talk all day. But the session that really like was the highlight of my day was called Reckonings Come Due. And um, the description in here, it says, when the scales of power are tipped against you, how do you push back against that weight? How do you hold society accountable to answer for injustice? And the authors who are who ended up being there for that panel were um, Justina Ireland, author of Rust in the Root, 
and Tiffany D. Jackson, who I don't think I've talked about before, but I just, I've read basically everything she's written. And her newest book is The Weight of Blood, which is about a biracial teen living in a small Southern town. And it's set in 2014. And specifically because it's based on a real case, a real um, situation where a town in Georgia in 2014 was having its very first interracial prom. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so Tiffany Jackson took that as like a kernel and wove it into this story, which is also an homage to Carrie by Stephen King. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and it was funny. I read it as an advanced copy um, a while back and didn't know about the Carrie part. And I was reading, I'm like, this seems really familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but it was intentional. But the two of them together were just amazing. They had fabulous rapport. They were funny. They were insightful. I took tons of quote notes. And uh, at one point, I just wrote in all caps, they are so fun. But they were fun with with also acknowledging the inherent challenges of being Black women writing in genre fiction. They both basically were talking about horror and fantasy and, and how throughout all of history that's been a white male dominated space actually here's here's a thing that i wrote it's not an exact quote but that dystopian fiction and horror are just things that happen to marginalized groups now that have happened to marginalized groups but they're now happening to white people and the more majority and they got really into discussing what defines horror and talked about how slave narratives are horror stories and that like felt so profound and I it shouldn't be for me I should know that already but it was you know one of those like kind of eye-opening moments because they said horror only happens to people who seem human and that you know for so long it was a white space and they're really trying to like carve this path um for marginalized communities that is really profound right but then they flip back and forth and then and have say most horror writers are low-key comedians because they're really funny. Like they were so great. They even had some articles and um, other things that I wrote down to to go back to. And then the last part I wanted to talk about, which I think I referenced when I was talking about Rust in the Root, but I didn't get a lot of it because I was reading the advanced copy that Justina Ireland used photographs from the Library of Congress that were taken in the 1930s. And she uses them throughout the book to kind of help set the stage and set the, the world building. Um, so she talked a little bit about her research and how she got to that space. And then Tiffany Jackson talked about her research for her book and she actually infiltrated a Facebook group on telekinesis. Interesting. That's cool. Right? <laughs> she was like, I, I turned into a whole telekinesis nerd. And then she was realized I have to get out of the house because it was during the pandemic. So I mean, I could go on and on. They were just fantastic. If you haven't read um, any of their books, I highly recommend and uh, They've become two of my favorite authors in the YA space. Like it made my whole day. Cool. That's awesome. I had a similar experience. Uh, the first session I went to, like way at the other end of the reading spectrum, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was called The Many Worlds of Young Readers, Early Chapter Books. And this is just one of my favorite uh, types of books. I've always enjoyed early chapter books, especially ones that are, I'll say, unique. You know, they may be a series, but they're, uh, how do I put it, like not getting away from like magic treehouse kind of thing, but less of like the popular series. Yeah. Like getting out of the mold, the, 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 the mainstream mold, like kind of doing something different and creative. Yeah. And these are smaller 
um, series. We'll just put it that way. Anyway, I love I love the sort of age group because it's such an important time in a reader's life and to have something that they can read on their own or these are the kinds of books I would suggest to families when they were wanted to read something out loud. Right. Um, but their child wasn't quite ready for like the more uh, standard chapter book. Uh, so anyway, on this panel was Janet Costa Bates. I had not heard of her before. I think this is a new book um, and the first one in the series, Rika Baptista. She's a Cape Verdean girl. So I oh, thought that cool. was really cool. Yeah, because I have not read and I don't know very many Cape Verdean characters, especially again for this age group. And the book is called Llamas, Iguanas, and My Very Best Friend. <laughs> I love it. I love that too. And then Debbie Michiko Florence, um, her character is Jasmine Taguchi, who's a Japanese American girl. There, I think there are five books in that series. I love that series. And then Don Quigley, who wrote Jojo McCoons, which I talked about on the podcast before. Um, and she read from her newest book, Fancy Pants. And then Raul III, so hopefully most of our uh, listeners have heard of him. He's really prolific. He's from Massachusetts, which is cool. I've really liked him for a long time. Um, and he's like won a bunch of awards. But people might know the Low Riders in Space uh, series. But like I said, he's prolific. He's got books for so many different ages. But for this panel, he talked about his early chapter book series called Tag Team. And they're uh, little luchador uh, little Mexican wrestlers. Oh, that's amazing. Cool. Yeah. And they're, they're not really human. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> like different kind of animal characters, and fantasy type characters, but they all spoke sort of on the specifics of writing for emergent readers. And one thing kind of going back to books like Magic Treehouse, Debbie, who, who writes the Jasmine books, uh, she talked about how it's actually really important to give characters for these types of books like a continuity so there mm -hmm. might be like a, a phrase that's specific to them or a behavior or even a thing like they always have a journal or right. something like that or they're really into art or whatever the thing might be um, so that readers can anticipate what's going to happen and it did make me think about how adults and again, mostly it was like working with parents or caregivers when I worked in a library, but that they tend to hate these sort of formulaic well, books. You get tired of it reading it out loud to your kids, but it's sure. so important. I mean, the, the, the structure and the predictability is really important. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it keeps them reading and it, it makes them want to read and, and read more. And then they will grow eventually. It's scaffolding. Exactly. It's helping you through the process and making you a better reader. Yeah, and that's what we want. We want them to keep reading. Um, many also talked about using languages other than English in their stories. And so I did want to point out that this was a non-white panel. And I did tell the moderator after how much I loved that, like thinking of my career, which spans about 20 years, I think even 10 years ago, we would not have seen an early chapter book panel that didn't have any white authors or illustrators on it. And that was so exciting to me. I absolutely love that. It was so refreshing. And that, yeah, I think each one of these books has some elements of other languages. And one of the things I love that Dawn Quigley brought up, um, and she's the Jojo McCoons author, she talked about decolonizing italics for these sort of languages other than English, because for her, Ojibwe is the primary language. Right. So English should be in italics. Yeah, exactly. 
So she doesn't do that, but she uses context to help the reader. And um, that also goes back to when they talked about like how they write for this age group, whether it's um, a language other than English or just new vocabulary, new concepts, how important context is. Mm -hmm. And that's how they, you know, again, help the reader along explain things without explaining them. Yeah. I kind of think back to um, Firekeeper's Daughter that, you know, there was a lot of Ojibwe language in throughout the book, but it was never defined. You you figured it out. And you know what? Kids who are learning English do the same thing. So right. <laughs> we should, we English speakers who are unfortunately only speaking one and a half languages or <laughs> right, <laughs> we can figure it out. Right. Yeah, definitely. There's a few more things I wanted to mention that I just thought were really interesting. So only one of the panelists, Raul III, illustrates his own books. So they were asked about, you know, what's it like working with an illustrator? Because as we know, sometimes the author never gets to talk to the illustrator, doesn't give input. Um, So they were asked about that. And I love Debbie said that she cried the first time she saw her character because it was like seeing her baby for the first time. Um, and she talked about how she's not a visual person. So she really didn't give like when they asked her, like, what, you know, how do you envision the character? What do you think she should look like? She was just like, um, she's Japanese American and she's eight <laughs> years old. <laughs> um, but she ended up like loving, loving her right away. Um, and then Dawn pointed out that Macoons means bear cub. Oh, the hair. Yeah, her illustrator represented that in JoJo's hair. So she has these kind of two little poofy ponytails. That, oh, my goodness. That's brilliant. Yeah, look like bear ears. Um, so that was great. And um, Janet, who wrote the the Rika Baptista books, uh, she actually said that there had been like a few illustrations that she looked at. And, you know, each time she's kind of like, oh, that's not quite right. That's not quite right. And then finally, um, it's uh, Gladys Jose, I think, you know, she she's the the chosen illustrator. But that that character, once she saw it, she knew that was the right uh, illustration that felt really authentic to her. And a lot of that had to do with the hair as well, down to like the little clip in her hair felt very much like, you know, the girls she knows and are in her family. So I, I like that. I thought that was really interesting. What a fun insight too into the book process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's why I thought it was really interesting. Um, but then I had an ugh moment. Oh, no. <laughs> and it didn't come from the panel. It came from a, Somebody a in the question. Audience. Yeah, it oh. came from an audience question. Um, it was a, a teacher, it might have actually been a teacher librarian, which kind of even disappoints me more, but I didn't, I didn't get their CV. But, <laughs> <laughs> but she did ask about using comics in the classroom and kind of admitted that she really didn't consider them, quote, real books. Oh, goodness. And that she actually tried to steer kids away from them. So yeah. Ugh. But Raul III had the best response. And this is where I was like, oh, I wish I could have recorded this and just had it, you know, tattoo it somewhere. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of summarizing. But what, what he talked about, and I here's the thing, and I'm going to put this out here now. If you are listening to this and you you feel more in line with the this questioner, but you want to learn more, please reach out to me and Christy. We'd love to chat. 
Yeah, love to chat more with you. There's tons of resources on why comics are real books. Um, and also we can make recommendations because we both love to read comics. So um, one of my favorite um, kind of trivia pieces about graphic novels and comics is that there's a research study that was done a number of years ago showing that kids who read comics have a bigger exposure to novel vocabulary. And it's like almost like 70 to 100% more novel vocabulary than they do in prose. And because the illustration is there to support it, the vocabulary development is just so amazing. That is amazing. But I want to hear what Raul said, so I'm sorry. I jumped in. (laughs) So it just was that he brought up stuff that I hadn't thought of before. Mm -hmm. So I already had sort of like, if I were answering the question, I have have what I know I would say um, and how I would advocate for comics. But what he talked about was he pointed out how many kids have never been to an art museum? How many kids, you know, that you would encounter that have no exposure to art in whatever form, fine art or whatever, and that this gives them a way and exposure to different art forms. And if you think about it, like comics, I mean, I think this person, because she did say like, she mentioned like Iron Man and whatever, you know, like kind of more of the superhero mainstream, whatever. And that is a type of artwork you know, and you're not going to get like too much variety. I think at that age. I mean, you can read one graphic novel and go from the beginning to end and get like three different, four different illustrators. I think what she had been exposed to was very limited herself. As you and I know, there's just like an amazing amount of variety. Yeah. But I also can't believe where you're still having this conversation. I know. Well, that's why I was like, ugh. But well, I'll go go back to Raoul's response. So he and he talked about that the reading of the visual and the text is actually very complex. And that I had heard about, but it was just the way he talked about it and the way he explained it was just so brilliant and how the the visual side, the art, communicates differently to each kid. And that was a thing I hadn't thought of. Like, and it really does open them up to art and that that's also a way he learned to be an artist by looking at what other artists have done and how how they do it um so in the end though like I said I really was like I can't believe we're still talking about this and how is there like how is there a librarian or an educator out there that hasn't kind of heard the word (laughs) right hasn't gotten the message but I'm so glad she asked that question I'm really glad that she felt like she could ask that in this setting. And then she heard the response and other people on the panel chimed in as well. And she said, like, thank you. I had not thought of it that way. So she was open-minded, you know, to the response. That's so great. I'm hoping that, you know, she'll go back to her classroom and, you know, do some work and. Yeah, maybe read some more graphic novels on her own. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, start with uh, Raul's books. But yeah, that was the part like, oh, I just wish I could have recorded every word he <laughs> said. But again, there's so many resources out there. Like if you're not convinced, or you're trying to help someone you know, who isn't convinced, we'd be happy to help because I think it's just so important. And I actually I got the chance to chat with him after in the author signing. And I thanked him. I said, your response was the best. Like that was so great. And I grew up reading Casper and Archie, which are total, like, what would be called junk, (laughs) (laughs) junky comics. And I turned out to be a librarian. Like, you can't, you can't look at that stuff and make any kind of, like, assessment, judgment, prediction. 
I'm totally in the camp of like all reading is good reading. One of the things I tell my students when, cause we do a whole week of graphic novels and comics. Um, cause I, I do structure the class by format. Um, is that, you know, if, if you have read a graphic novel or a comic and you didn't like it, that doesn't mean you don't like the whole format because my big soapbox is graphic novels are a format, not a genre, which means that every genre exists and that you might just haven't, you might not have found the story that really clicks with you. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. And, um, right. Or the artwork, you know, like I, I've talked about that on a, on a previous episode, it was the, um, the not Captain America, but, oh no, no, no. Winter Soldier. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, it was one of those Marvel (laughs) things that I, um, I know I can't remember what I've talked about. No, but what I remember was that I didn't love the artwork, but I still felt like it matched, you know, the story and the vibe and all of that, but I wouldn't pick it as something like I want to put on my wall at home, you know? So, and like you, when, when I taught children's literature, I didn't have very many students in that class but none of them had read comics. And so I try to remember that too. I mean, they were significantly younger and new to the field. So I, you know, had gave them some grace there. Like, but, you know, again, on a good note, I am, I'm glad that she asked. I really am. Even though I was sort of like, oh, I can't believe we're still (laughs) kind of debating this. Um, Because if she hadn't asked, she wouldn't have changed her mind. True. Right. And then there are probably people in the audience that also thought that and they're hearing the answer too, which is really powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want, were there any other sessions? So I, I just, I have to like mention one more quote that I didn't like see when I was going through my notes, but that was like fabulous. So uh, Justina Ireland um, is a history nerd, like loves history. And um, what she said about writing her books, they're all speculative fiction written in historical times. Um, but she wrote that she said the af- average appetite for history is pretty low. So I just add more magic or zombies or murder. <laughs> I just love that. Like, oh, yeah, cool, cool. We'll just add some zombies and then we can have a historical fiction book. I, I've got to read some of her books because I like the way her brain works. <laughs> yes. And there's humor in there, too, because like you have to balance all the the scary terror stuff with humor. Right. Well, when you mentioned that before, that they are also comedians, I did think that I'm like, I don't think you could write horror or, you know, produce it as a film or whatever without having a sense of humor. I mean, that would just be a really dark place. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, somebody got up and asked a question that that person happened to be white and they asked the authors how they felt about content and trigger warnings. And their answers to that were really great. Um, and, And also, I think not quite firm in a yes, they're great, they're, the warnings are good, or no, they're not good. And so uh, Tiffany Jackson said to remember that Black kids don't get trigger warnings when they walk out the door, and that a lot of the things that show up in books are stuff that kids are dealing with all the time. And then they were like, you're picking up a horror book. It's gonna, it's gonna be bad. Something bad is gonna happen, right? Right. <laughs> trigger, this is a horror story. <laughs> Um, and so they uh, said that, you know, content trigger warnings are a good space for reviewers and librarians to step in. But you have to be careful because sometimes people like review white 
white people weaponize those trigger warnings um, against LGBTQ people and people of color. And that was just something that really stood out to me because when, you know, as we're talking about book challenges and thinking about all the stuff that's going on, we don't talk as much about the people who don't buy a book because of the review and because the review might be about a queer couple or the review is um, about a Black person. And that's really detrimental to our kids as readers. And that the the content warnings, I'm using quotes, content warnings and trigger warnings that may exist in a review can sometimes then prevent people from buying a book for their collection. And I think we just need to be very cognizant of that and not weaponize those types of warnings. Right. That's a great thing to bring up. And actually, if you don't mind, transitions into the other session I went to. And and that came up, actually. Uh, self-censorship came up about what kind of books you purchase, whether it's as a librarian or a parent or a classroom teacher. Um, in this session, it was called Pushing Back Against the Pushback, Uplifting Marginalized Books for Young People in an Age of Censorship. And I will say, the panel was great. Like the, the authors were all so interesting. I have not read any of them. I had not heard of any of them, but I want to read all their books now. <laughs> um, and I will, I will talk about um, who they were and what they've written. I did think it was going to be a little bit more on the pushback. Like when I hear that phrase or I read that phrase. Like what can we do? <laughs> yeah, I really did think there'd be like a bit more of that. And maybe like we could get into like some real passionate discussion. And it wasn't that, but that's okay. Each of these authors, the books they've created are the kinds of books that can and may be in the future challenged just because of who wrote them and what they're about. They were all written by either people of color or from marginalized groups. All their characters, you know, could, could be under target. But I'll start by uh, talking about who was there. So Frederico, I'm just going to read from the booklet because it explains it better than I would. Frederico Arribia, um, he's a forthcoming YA novel called Pedro and Daniel. And it's about Mexican-American brothers and their resilient bond despite the lifelong hardship of unrelenting colorism, homophobia, and violence in their home. And this is actually based on the author's life experiences. He's actually, a, I think, a retired doctor now, which I thought was really interesting. But what it doesn't say in here is that both the characters are also um, neurodivergent. And even though the book hasn't come out, he did talk about you know, how this could be a book that's challenged even before it's published. Um, it's, it's due out next summer. Nora Lester Murad, an activist and educator, is the author of the forthcoming YA novel, Ida in the Middle, about a Palestinian-American girl who faces anti-Arab racism and finds strength in her people's struggle. And this book sounded really interesting to me because what happens is that Ida, who is Palestinian but lives in America, um, her parents are immigrants, she is able to transport to Palestine and see what it's like to live there. And in some ways, it's a benefit because she's not othered there. She belongs there. It's, you know, she's part of the community. She doesn't look different from everyone else. She's not treated differently. Um, but it's not, you know, a very safe uh, place to be. And so kind of in the end, what it sounded like is that she would have to choose where, where she's going to stay. Um, and then Lisa Stringfellow uh, she's a middle school teacher in Boston. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, 
And she has a middle grade fantasy called A Comb of Wishes, and it explores grief and loss through Black storytelling and traditions. And she talked about sort of her Caribbean background and that storytelling tradition in in Caribbean culture and how she tried really not to explain that, but again, leaving it to context and like letting the readers, you know, learn about it on their own. So instead of kind of like, yeah, hitting them over the head with like, this is <laughs> whatever. Um, so I thought, I thought that book sounded so interesting. And um, I really enjoyed hearing her talk. She also talked a little bit about gatekeeping, which I think also goes hand in hand with self censorship, you know, and, and with thinking about reviews, which I think we've maybe talked about on the podcast before, but she talked about how consumers need to show like what they want, you know, that they want, diverse books um, and then to support these books when they come out uh, so I just thought that's like a really important reminder go buy books independent bookstores yeah and by people or about people who have diverse backgrounds and experiences and then the final panelist was Betty G. Yee, um, and she's also an elementary school teacher uh, Lisa's a middle school teacher Betty G. Yee is an elementary school teacher she has a young adult historical novel called Gold Mountain, and it follows a young Chinese girl who takes her twin brother's place working for the Central Pacific Railroad Company. Oh, wow. And yeah, she was really wanting to know herself more about people who came from China to work on the railroad. Like, how did that happen? And so she did a lot of research and it sounds really good as well. And of course, we're going to put all our links in our show notes um, and we've got pictures to share. I just wanted to mention that the facilitator or the moderator was Dr. Aman Kadra Ansari. She's a Palestinian American pediatrician, and she was just as fascinating to me and interesting and um, insightful as the authors because she talked about why this topic is important to her. She, you know, she doesn't come from the book world. She's not a librarian. She's not a teacher. She's not part of a publisher or anything like that. She's a pediatrician, but she talked about, you know, where she grew up, and that that's as Palestinian, but she said in, she was from Saudi Arabia. I, I could have sworn that's what she said, but... Well, she could be Palestinian, but lived in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, exactly. But the thing was that where she lived and grew up, there were lots of banned books, illegal books, not just... I mean, we talk about banning books in the US, but it usually means getting them out of public or school libraries, you know, where you could still buy them. These were just not even legal in the country that she lived in. And they just spanned from like romance, simple romance, but also philosophy, history, world history. So she, even though she was in medical school when she was visiting, I think she said cousins in another country, she learned about like World War II. She didn't, she, and she felt ashamed, which she shouldn't have. That's not her fault, but it really like lit a fire in her that has maintained throughout her life. And and that's why this topic's like really, really important to her. And she said as a pediatrician, she considers books as essential as food and healthy living, you know, books are, are part of that. Um, so I, I thought that was really, really cool and interesting. And I think she was, like I said, very insightful and just like a great choice for this topic. Mm-hmm. 
I would be remiss if I didn't say a little bit more about the love and destruction panel that I went to. There were three authors, um, Sasha Lamb, who wrote When the Angels Left the Old Country, which is kind of set around the turn of the 20th century um, about young Jewish women, um, a young Jewish woman who is going to um, move to America and she's realizing that she's in love with her best friend. Um, so queer Jewish at the turn of the 20th century, very small um, niche. Um, and then uh, Tucker Shaw, who wrote uh, When You Call My Name, um, about two gay teenagers in the 1990s in New York City. And then Ashley Woodfolk, Nothing's, Nothing Burns As Bright As You. Um, it's a novel in verse about um, two queer Black girls who have, she called it, what did she call it? A situationship or something. I, I can't remember the exact term, but it was basically like, they have a really strong friendship that might be more than friends that, you know, is like, but isn't necessarily healthy. And I actually do have a recording of um, Ashley reading out loud some of her poetry. And I don't know if it's good enough for us to include, um, but we can try. And then um, Tucker Shaw, the author of um, When You Call My Name, had this amazing quote about like thinking about relationships and how people, young people find relationships and fit in together or don't fit in together. He said, sometimes you have to create harmonies rather than trying to share the same melody. Oh, I like that. That was so perfect. And the, and there's a lot of music throughout the book. I haven't read it yet. Laura's listening to it and said it's fantastic. Um, and uh, Tucker mentioned that somebody had put together a playlist on Spotify. So I found it. And then as we drove home last night, we listened to it. Oh, very cool. Yes. And I can link to that as well. So people can listen along. Very cool. Well, thank you. No, I'm glad you brought up the other panel because, again, like, you know, this was our first time going and there's going to be so many people listening that would never get the chance to come to Boston to go to this. Um, so we hope we give you a little taste of what it's like. But if you do, even if, like if you live outside of the state, live outside of the country and you happen to want to come, uh, October is a great time to be in the area. It's lovely weather and you could go to Boston Book Festival and then you could go to Salem and do some Halloween stuff. So uh, we highly encourage you to come um, make it a destination, a, bu a book vacation. That's right. Um, do you have any final thought on the book fest or your first experience? I think I just was smiling all day, just filled with joy and getting to see all these people out. Everybody was, you know, there because they love books. And the two uh, panel sessions that I went to were in the Teen, Teen Central at Boston Public Library, which is just the best teen space. But there was a wide variety of people, wide variety of backgrounds and ages. And, you know, it wasn't just librarians and booksellers and stuff, but there were kids there and the teens had fantastic questions. And it, so it just, it gave me hope for society. Like books give me hope for society. And this was kind of reaffirming that. Right. Yeah, I would absolutely concur. I felt happy the whole day for all the same reasons you said. And I would definitely go back. I'm so sad that I've not participated all these years and, and just that I'd give myself more time. You know, they do say, don't drive in, take public transportation. But if I had driven and I could have stayed longer <laughs> because where I live, the train, yeah, the train has uh, some limit, limited scheduling on the weekend. So I would definitely like to go back, but I would want to spend the whole day because there was just so much more to do. And yeah, just to like to maintain that joyfulness a, a couple hours longer would have been nice. I also I loved walking around with Laura because we both showed up wearing the same shirt. 
Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> it says book nerd, like black with the book nerd from um, out of print. That was the, the place that does a lot of really cool book themed um, shirts and and swag. And so we'd be walking around and people would just yell book nerd or like come up and be like, love your shirt. And totally not planned, but really just was one of the extra little amazing things about the day. That's really yes, fun. Definitely. Yeah. You could not miss your shirt. <laughs> I also had a book theme shirt, but it was, you had to be really close to my body (laughs) to see it. It's got a a skull on it. um, And it says, if my book is open, your mouth should be closed. And it's from Copper Dog Books. Um, So yeah, we can link to our bookish apparel as well. So yeah, it was super fun. It was super fun to to experience with you, even though we didn't go to the same sessions. It was nice to meet up. Yes. And um, yeah, we just want to thank our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this very special episode. Yeah, and please reach out to us. Um, find us on social media. We are This Pod is Overdue on Instagram. Our email is thispodisoverdue at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Um, that's the like best thing you can do. If you like it, you know, subscribe, review, share. And um, you can also, do you want to tell about the Patreon and Ko-Fi? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you haven't heard, if you're a new listener, um, you can support us on Patreon or buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi, which we also call coffee. (laughs) This is when you think about like early chapter books and how they have a thing that they do all the time to have structure and familiarity. That's ours. That's what we're trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) We swear it's intentional. But yes, there are many ways to support us. But if you wanted to give financial support, you can do that as well. And you can get there through our Instagram is probably the easiest way. Just click the link in our bio. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Happy reading, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Podcast is Overdue with Christy and April. Bye, everyone. Happy reading. Our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alidu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. Do you have a person at your door? I don't know what is going on because I'm not supposed to be involved in anything outside this room. But yeah, that was a doorbell. Wow.